right now, though, we are taking a look about look at the vaccine rollout in this country and a lot of people taking notice to the list of countries, the percentage of population that has been vaccinated and where Canada sits on that list. It was the topic of discussion yesterday when the health committee met, albeit virtually, many people appearing in front of the health committee to talk about this. This is the House of Commons committee. Take a listen just before we get to our first guest, somebody we've had on the program before, Amir Adaran, who's a University of Ottawa health law professor, uh, testified during that industry committee yesterday. The first is that Canada was slow when competition for vaccine purchases and partnerships was intense last spring and summer. We were weeks or months slower off the mark than peer country. Who's ever heard of the last mover advantage? It doesn't exist. The second point is we did not manufacture the only vaccine that we could have done, which is the Oxford-AstraZeneca one, and which was available to us and other countries under a license. Since that time, the Prime Minister has oddly blamed this on Brian Mulroney. That isn't really true because a careful study shows that Britain itself did not have as much vaccine manufacturing capacity at the beginning of 2020 as Canada did. Canada had more. They stepped on it. They built capacity in months, they are now nearly the best in the world at vaccination. We are around 40th place. Following that uh, testimony from Amir Adaran, we heard from Dr. Joel Lexchin, who's a former York University health policy professor, drug industry watchdog, also an ER physician in Toronto. And Dr. Lexchin joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, Jill. Happy to do it. Uh, You talked to the committee yesterday as well. You talked about the fact that Canada in the past didn't pay attention when we were dealing with other pandemics, when we dealt with SARS and with H1N1. How much of an issue is that today? Well, I think it's it's key to understanding the position we're in. So our problem goes back at least 35 years to when... um, We allowed Connaught Laboratories to be sold off to a French company that was in 1989. Um, Then we allowed a a company based in Quebec to be sold off to GlaxoSmithKline, so that by the time the pandemic hit, having ignored, of course, the warnings from SARS H1N1 and Ebola, we um, essentially had no no domestically controlled manufacturing capacity for vaccines. We were subject, the two, the two main um, sites of manufacturing were in Toronto, controlled by Sanofi, a French company, and um, a, a plant in Saint-Foy, Quebec, controlled by GlaxoSmithKline. They were deciding what vaccines to make. Um, in fact, they're collaborating on a vaccine um, but that, if that vaccine gets approved, it won't be made in Canada either. So we hollowed out our domestically controlled vaccine manufacturing capabilities. There are other countries, though, aren't there? And I know Israel has a much smaller population, but there are other countries that are doing much better than Canada when it comes to vaccinating their population that also don't have domestic supply. That's true. And this is where... Um, one of the faults of the current Liberal government come into play, which is the, the complete lack of transparency 
around the contracts that we've signed with um, the various companies. So we've got seven or contracts with seven different companies, but the terms of those contracts are secret. So how much are we paying for per dose versus what's being paid in the United States, Europe, Israel? We don't know. Is the vaccine delivery supposed to be on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, a quarterly basis? We don't know. Is there, um, is, are there penalties if delivery is delayed? We don't know. So when we're comparing ourselves to other countries, we really don't have any good basis for understanding why Canada is so much slower in receiving vaccines than these other places. And what do you say then to uh, the argument that every time it seems that we call for transparency or we hear a question about the contracts and asking the federal government to release anything it can, uh, we're often told, well, we can't do that because uh, this is a deal we made. This is a contract we signed with the company and it's not something that we can make public. Well, I mean, I my answer to that is that um, in the U.S. and in um, Europe, some details of the contracts that they have signed have been made public. So it may, it may not be possible to get to all of the details, but it certainly seems like some elements of the contract can be revealed. Um, but the government has not chosen to do that. Uh, Amir Adaran, uh, who again spoke uh, to the same committee that you spoke to yesterday, uh, calls it a disaster, says that Canada blew it, and also takes issue, as you talked about as well with transparency, takes issue with the secrecy uh, involved or around this task force that brought us to the point to where we are today. Uh, how much of it is, do you think, or is it an issue uh, as far as the health ministry not being as involved as, say, the procurement minister and that secrecy around the committee? So let me deal with the secrecy first. This committee was set up back around June of 2020. Um, the names of the people weren't revealed for about a month or a little more. Their conflicts of interest weren't revealed um, until um, there was until the, some information was leaked, and we still don't know. <clears throat> excuse me, the details of the meetings that were held. Um, we don't know what kind of advice they actually gave to the government. Um, but we do know that um, from what little information is out there, that the two co-chairs of the committee both had conflicts of interest with at least some of the companies that contracts were signed with. So whether or not those conflicts of interest um, had an influence on what kind of on the advice that the committee gave um, is not clear at all. As far as the second point around whether or not Health Canada should have been involved, I think Amir Adaran is correct um, that the Health Committee, perhaps the Health Committee shouldn't have had sole authority in this, um, and it should have been shared with the um, Procurement Minister, Anita Anand, um, but the Health Committee, or the Health Ministry should have been involved intimately with the um, decisions that were being made. Uh, so with the fumbling that we've seen up to this point, uh, the lack of transparency, as you just mentioned, the conflict of interest, uh, we now know uh, about that committee. Uh, are you confident when you hear, or, or what do you think when you hear the Prime Minister repeat the line over and over that every Canadian who wants a vaccine will be able to get one by the end of September? 
I certainly hope so. It would make my job in the emergency department a lot easier if I knew that people had been vaccinated. Um, But right now, the answer is um, we don't know. Um, Because we're not not making any of the vaccines, a lot of the decisions that are being made are outside of our hands. So what happens if Pfizer decides that they need to do more work on their plant in Belgium? Moderna is making vaccines in Switzerland. Suppose Switzerland decides that they're going to impose a, um, an export ban. Um, we, those are things that, at this point, we can't predict. Um, so perhaps everybody will be able to get vaccinated by the end of September of 2021. Um, but I don't think we can count on it. All right, Dr. Alex Chin, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks for your interest in this topic. Thanks for being with us. Yesterday on the program, we were talking about the federal government and the gun regulation and some of the new rules they were proposing. The bill that, well, we don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but this is the bill that would bring in the opportunity for a buyback program and also give municipalities and cities the powers, perhaps, to bring in their own handgun ban if wanted. We heard quickly from both the mayors of Vancouver and Surrey saying they would do that immediately. And on this program, Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart answered a question about a gun ban like this. In fact, my family has a very long history. My grandfather was a gunsmith. I'm a, you know, I I have a a permit for both restricted and non-restricted firearms. And so I I know a lot of the uh, community and I think all of us would agree that handguns have no place in cities. Let's bring in Sarah Kirby-Young, NPA Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Always appreciate you uh, having me on. Uh, What is your response to uh, both the mayor coming out right away saying he wanted to bring forward a motion to council to get support for this and that everybody agrees that there is no place for handguns in cities? Well, I I think my response is, first of all, what problem are you trying to solve? And if the issue and the bigger concern for the public right now is the increase um, and disturbing um, and rapid increase in gang violence and, you know, associated shootings. I don't think that a, a gun ban on legal gun owners is going to solve that issue. And so I think we need to be really honest around what um, a policy and a gun ban like that would achieve and what it wouldn't. Uh, do you think there would be another way? Because that's certainly one of the arguments that it's it's once again punishing people that aren't the problem, that aren't the people committing the crimes. So what could be done? Well, right now, I, I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not advocating uh, for or against a ban right now. I'm listening. Um, and, you know, to your earlier question, um, in terms of the mayor coming out right away with a strong position on this, I think I think it's premature um, because I think we need to have evidence-based um, policy and decision-making and banning guns in cities. Yes, everybody would agree it's a great statement to say that guns don't have a place here. I would agree with that. Um, however, again, I go back to what problem are you trying to solve? And I'm not sure that um, this is the way forward. I also have uh, a concern around a patchwork of regulations on something that isn't a nationwide ban, uh, because inevitably you will end up um, seeing inconsistencies across cities or municipalities in the country. Um, and that creates, um, obviously, its own issues. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the mayor of Calgary, or, or on Twitter at least, uh, talking about the mayor of Calgary, who, who came out with a, a similar statement saying there, it doesn't work if it's a patchwork. If it's something that we're going to do, it does need to be something that, that's done across the country. Uh, do you think there's an appetite to, to get the numbers, to get the information, to figure out a smart way to go forward with this? Well, I think two things on that. I think, um, you know, uh, the question I would ask to Mayor Seward, um in Vancouver is why not advocate? Um, instead of, you know, Vancouver going it alone, why not advocate for a nationwide ban if that's what you're looking to do? Um, so I think that's the important thing. I also think that the federal government, honestly, um, is downloading this because it's a political hot potato to municipalities and therefore they don't have to deal with it um, at the national level. Um, but I think national regulation is the most effective way to go um, if that's something that the public wants. Well, there's even been some question of could can this be downloaded to municipalities and to cities? Is it something that could just be shifted over and put into their jurisdiction? Well, I think it really honestly would be a challenge. I've heard the mayor say that, you know, he would be advocating for additional funds. We need additional bylaw enforcement officers. So, you know, again, if the issue is keeping is public safety and keeping people safe, then let's attack and deal with the, the gang violence. And what we're hearing from the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police is that they're saying that a handgun ban wouldn't stop the flow of weapons. And what's most important um, in looking at any gun measures is to deal with illegal trafficking and to deal with um, the criminals that are typically committing these crimes with illegal weapons. Uh, right, because uh, you, you'd like to think in a scenario where, okay, handguns are now banned. Well, I mean, handguns are banned now. You have to take a course, you have to pass a test, and you have to be a registered owner. You have to have a character witness. So you have to go through a lot of different steps to do that. So, I mean, there is a ban. Criminals, generally speaking, don't do any of that. And what's to say they're going to suddenly be part of, oh, gun, guns are banned. I guess I'll stop doing the crime that I've been doing. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds, you know, <laughs> really far-fetched when you say that, and I think it's because it is. I mean, these are people that are obeying the law now. Um, so I, I think that uh, we're not going to see that change. And in fact, you could see it get worse, because if you ban something, you can potentially push it further underground. So on the one hand, we have the mayor advocating for decriminalizing drugs, um, so that you don't have all the associated criminality with it, and, you know, we're not dealing with sort of an unsafe supply of toxic drugs and trying to deal with our, you know, the terrible opioid crisis that we're facing. But on the other hand... We're suggesting that we ban guns, um, which, you know, may actually increase the illegal issue and exacerbate the problem. Uh, we're talking about crime. I wanted to, to touch on this with you as well. I hope it's okay because I saw this after uh, you had already agreed to come on the show. Vancouver police put out uh, some pretty shocking video today uh, showing a number of robberies, of, of, of um, store robberies, retail robberies, uh, some of the, the backgrounds of the arrests made, and thankfully there were arrests made. These are people that had been in prison uh, previously for manslaughter. Uh, in one case, somebody uh, did have a firearm uh, on them. And, and they're violent. In one video, you see uh, somebody, a suspect, break a liquor bottle or break a glass bottle and threaten uh, the store owner uh, only to then go and, and, and steal groceries from this person. What do you say to, to what appears to be, and this was just in a one-month period, of these very violent and, and scary crimes? I haven't seen the video yet myself this morning, but I can tell you that this is what I'm hearing about all the time in the city from residents who are feeling increasingly unsafe. Um, and there's a lot of examples of um, public safety concerns, like the one that you're suggesting attacks um, on people in the downtown area. We had the one in the West End Friday night. Um, and people are increasingly concerned. That, to me, is the bigger issue that we should be tackling head on in the city right now, because it's 
very real and it's impacting a lot of people. Uh, at this point, and I, I appreciate you haven't seen the video, uh, they did say that in this one month period, so 250 shoplifting incidents, 130 individuals were arrested and a recommendation of 268 criminal charges. I think people will hear that and they'll be impressed saying that's great that these people have been arrested, charges have been recommended, but then are also fearful that they're just going to get a slap on the wrist and be back out doing this again. Well, and that is the challenge um, oftentimes um, in Canada with the court system. It's, um, you know, the police can arrest them, but um, it's up to the courts and it's based on, you know, our laws and the criminal code as to how severe the punishment and the penalties are that they face. And so sometimes you do see that resolving door um, and it's it's really frustrating. All right, Councillor, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jill. You have a good one. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, there was a ruling earlier today when it comes to in-church, in-person church services. And the judge that was overseeing this, this was the application for an injunction that was made by the province of BC, Dr. Bonnie Henry, against three churches in Langley, in Abbotsford, and Chilliwack, looking for an injunction for churches that had been deemed to have been breaking the public health order. The justice did not grant the injunction, in fact, ruled against that. And the last line of the ruling, the judgment says, to be clear, I am not condoning the petitioner's conduct in contravention of the orders that they challenge, but find that the injunctive relief sought by the respondents should not be granted. Let's bring on Marty Moore, a staff lawyer at the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms, for more on this. Marty, great to have you back on the show. Good to be with you, Jill. Thank you. What are your thoughts on what uh, Mr. Justice Hinkson ruled? Well, our clients are obviously revealed, uh, relieved uh, that the court denied the injunction. Um, the B.C. government was seeking a court order for police to scrutinize actually the even intentions of individuals and detain them if the police believed that uh, those individuals intended to attend uh, one of these worship services. And the court hearing on this, on the merits of the constitutional issue, is, is coming up quickly. It'll be heard on March 1st to 3rd. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the current uh, denial of the injunction, the, the Chief Justice found that the, the B.C. government did not meet the test and on the balance of convenience uh, did not issue the injunction. What does this mean for these churches then? Even if we, we see that uh, challenge coming up on March First, that still has two more weekends where there's the potential these churches could have in-person worship. Are they going to continue doing that and face fines, or what does it mean for them? Yeah, uh, the the petitioners that we represent have been uh, at meeting uh, with rigorous uh, COVID safety protocols in place, uh, contact tracing, social distancing, rearranging and reorganizing their services to uh, minimize any risk of COVID transmission. In fact, they've adhered to all of the guidelines that are set out for, for example, uh, support groups in the public health orders. And they've been doing that uh, safely for about nine months now and have had no cases of COVID transmission. So I understand and, and believe that uh, these petitioners will continue to, to do that as they believe sincerely that they need to meet in person uh, to celebrate the sacraments of their faith to meet uh, both for the spiritual and mental and emotional well-being of the congregants that they serve. 
what do you say then to part of the reason this injunction was sought by Dr. Bonnie Henry, by the BC government, was that they were suggesting, they argued that these are indoor settings for, for generally speaking, especially right now, given that it's winter. They involve a large assembly of people from different households. They last for an extended duration. That's more than 15 minutes. Uh, they include individuals who are in high-risk groups. That's including older individuals. And they often involve loud talking and singing, which can lead to more transmission. Yeah, I think I think uh, our our clients are, are you know obviously very concerned about any any risk of to the safety of their own congregants, and they have taken steps to address those uh, concerns. I think the reality is is that uh, you know in BC there are settings that are open, whether it's gyms or restaurants, uh, that have been doing so safely, and our clients are following those guidelines. It's also important to note, you know, just the context in which these orders are being issued. Uh, within the court case itself, uh, the BC government has has provided uh, a statement stating that uh, 180 cases of COVID have been linked and or associated with religious gatherings. And again, no indication as to whether the guidelines are being followed in those guidelines. But the experience of our clients is that when the guidelines are followed, uh, COVID transmission has not happened. Uh, the Archdiocese of Vancouver said that COVID transmission had not happened. There's not a single reported COVID case of uh, being transmitted on the island. And and so the reality is, is that in light of, you know, you can have 50 people at a support group uh, following these exact same guidelines. Why does it change uh, when the discussion is instead of dealing with substance abuse, it's, it's dealing with, with matters of faith. And so the, the, uh, the concerns that our clients have raised uh, in related to their sincere religious beliefs that they need to meet in person uh, are before the court. And, uh, you know, those concerns are certainly going to be before the judge, and, and we look forward to his ruling. Uh, what do you say then to, will you be using that then as an argument moving forward in that uh, I had a friend actually, a friend who lives in Whistler, send me a picture of somebody who had, had raised this issue and it wasn't even somebody that was going to church, but used it as an example of some of the hotels that we know are still open. And I'm guessing it's elsewhere too, that just this happened to be in Whistler and we've been talking a lot about Whistler, uh, that the only rule for the outdoor pool area, which was still open, was that it had to be less than 30 people. Didn't have to be 30 people in the same family. It just had to be 30 people or less. And quite asking me, hey, has something changed? Why is this allowed? And other things such as church gatherings aren't. Does that become part of the argument then when you continue this? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, science and common sense are not at odds in these circumstances. And, you know, the rest of the country, uh, you, you see governments imposing relatively consistent rules across the board. Um, but in BC, you see uh, particular, uh, a particular prohibition on religious gatherings uh, that is inconsistent with the, the restrictions on other events. I mean, I, I was just in BC myself and, and attending there to sit in a restaurant or, or to sit in a food court. Everyone's taking their masks off, you're eating, uh, you know. The, the context of the religious services at issue here, uh, you know, are individuals entering a religious service. They've pre-registered. They've provided their contact information. They have assigned seating. They go in. Uh, the seating is 
segregated off from others uh, to ensure social distancing. They sit down, they may stand up to recite or, or to, to speak out or sing out something, but they're all socially distanced in large auditoriums that can accommodate hundreds. They're limited to 50 or at the most. And then they are, you know, the, the service itself is changed, so there's not the passing around of, of the communion emblems, for example. And after the service, they stand up and in a socially distant fashion, leave the building with their masks on. And so these are the circumstances we're addressing. I would venture to say that that is by common sense and even science. Uh, science was presented to the judge uh, attesting to the safety of these uh, churches by our experts. But common sense would say that's going to be just as safe, if not more safe than many of the activities that BC residents are engaging in on a daily basis, which are permitted by the public health orders. Are you concerned that uh, even though uh, you are still challenging this, that there could be stiffer penalties and there could be uh, harsher fines levied against these churches if they continue to gather? You know, the the government violation uh, of, of charter rights is a serious concern for us, and escalation of of the attempt to uh, prohibit the exercise of charter rights is a concern. And I'll note that we filed this constitutional challenge also on behalf of individuals exercising their constitutional right to protest. And, you know, it was good to see the B.C. government back off on that by admitting, you know, we haven't seen transmission uh, through protests. And and that was helpful, uh, but at the same time, the data you know, indicating that we have 180 cases, you know, through, you know, months and months of religious services being held in B.C. out of about 74,000 cases of COVID in B.C. uh, For the government to be relying on that data to quash the right categorically of religious communities in B.C. to meet together for religious worship is of serious concern and escalation in enforcement on those faith communities is also of concern. Uh, how do you anticipate or how long do you think things will be when the challenge goes ahead March 1st? Do you expect there will be a speedy decision? Well, uh, the court has obviously taken this matter very seriously and has, has made court resources and court time available to hear it. Uh, and so I do expect that this matter will be addressed in, in, a, in a more prompt manner than, than maybe other uh, not as urgent court cases are addressed. All right, uh, Marty Moore, thanks again so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, a lot of calls to the buzz line when it comes to churches. I will play those for you a bit later on this hour. We do like to lighten things up a bit in the final hour of the program. And this is good news if you live in Port Coquitlam and you've enjoyed going out. If you think back to last summer, being able to enjoy a sip of beer, maybe a sip of wine in a park. Well, adults will be able to drink responsibly at more Port Coquitlam parks coming up when the weather cooperates or not throw on a coat. Brad West is the mayor of Port Coquitlam and is joining me on the line now. Mayor West, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I know there was, if we think back, I mean, it seems like it was five years ago. It also feels like it was five minutes ago when we were talking about all of these different places and we were looking at how to get people outside. A lot of people saying they wanted to enjoy responsibly an alcoholic beverage. And it sounds like things went pretty well in Port Coquitlam. Yeah, it went exceedingly well, which is actually what I expected. You know, any time you try and do something new, you do get uh, some uh, naysayers or, you know, folks who <laughs> kind of think of the, the most remote uh, doomsday scenario 
Uh, I never thought that was going to come to pass. And, you know, if you allow that to dictate what you do, you'll never do anything. And so uh, we did it in Port Coquitlam, and uh, it was incredibly successful. Uh, you know, I I participated in it once or twice, and uh, but also uh, uh, just was out in the boat with my family, uh, you know, through our, our parks, the, particularly the parks close to, to our home. And, you know, you know what I saw? I saw families. I saw families with a barbecue or a picnic and, uh, you know, that glass of wine or, or beer that was probably always there to begin with uh, just now wasn't hidden. And, and so people were able to get out into our parks and, and enjoy those gatherings. Uh, you know, I heard some really creative things as well. You know, there are people who had birthday parties. There were retirement parties, family gatherings. I uh, even heard of a couple weddings. And you think about that, you know, people who uh, were excited about getting married and then had their plans uh, dashed because of COVID and, and were able to adapt and, and take advantage of our, our parks and, you know, to be able to have a toast uh, with a glass of champagne to an, uh, a newly married couple. I mean, that's a good thing. So, you know, quite often, I think the case is that, you know, government and local government just has to get out of the way and allow some of these things to happen. And uh, that's what we did in Port Coquitlam, and it was very successful. Uh, so there were seven parks that were originally part of the pilot project. It looks like that's going to be expanded. Is it to 10 parks uh, coming up? That's right. So there were seven originally included in the pilot, and we've made it permanent. So uh, it's a permanent feature now of those seven parks. And then we also decided to add three more because part of what we did was go to the community and have a public feedback opportunity, ask people what they liked about it, what they didn't, where they supported it continuing, and whether they thought any additions would make sense. And and through that feedback, we were able to identify three additional parks where it was felt that uh, uh, it would be uh, appropriate to allow this. And uh, one of them in particular uh, connects to one of our wonderful trails that we have that circles our entire city and, and very close to a number of the local breweries we have in Port Coquitlam. So I know a number of people are excited about that opportunity. I think, again, it just makes for a better experience and, uh, you know, lets people uh, uh, just have a, you know, a good experience out there in Poco. Uh, are there any concerns that with where we are right now with the pandemic in that, again, it seems so far away, but not last summer, uh, there was, we were in the situation of safe six. People had their bubbles that they were being asked to stick to and uh, to stay safe that way. We're not at that point anymore, whereas now we're being told not to go out and not to gather with people outside of our households. Are you concerned at all that having these pilot projects and as the weather gets nicer with people being encouraged to go outside and have a beverage, people are going to be gathering with bigger groups? Yeah, not really, because look, the the reality is that you know the issues of people, um, you know, going outside and, and gathering, you know, is is happening all already, right? And so that's something that our our bylaw works on in cooperation with uh, local health authority officials and and others. And so, you know, all the other rules that exist around gatherings, uh, and any other issues, you know, those still apply. And so we still deal with those as they as they come, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll be optimistic and hope that by the time summer does uh, roll around that uh, we are able to expand our bubbles, um, you know, beyond the, the current uh, 
orders around just your household. I think a lot of people are hoping for that. And you're right as well. A lot of people, I I think even anecdotally speaking, whether it's right or wrong, if people agree or not, uh, a lot of people kind of stayed in that bubble, stayed with that safe six or have done so uh, these past few months as well. Uh, Looking at this pilot project, did you get any uh, concerns raised uh, from bylaw officers or from uh, from law enforcement? Were there any issues that you know of during this, the, the original seven pilot project parks? So we had a grand total of one complaint, and uh, we had one complaint to bylaw during the entire period of the pilot. It happened very early on. It was in the first week of the pilot project, and it was about um, a a group of people who uh, were being uh, loud, a little boisterous. And, uh, you know, uh, whether that was connected to them having a beer or not, or maybe they would have been loud anyways. But the reality is that bylaw attended the situation immediately, uh, asked the people to, to keep it down, and they did, and, and life went on. So that that was the, the full extent of uh, any public complaint or, or problems that we had. Uh, we did have a, a report, again, that assessed the, the pilot, and outside of that one incident, uh, there were no other incidents that reported to, to bylaw uh, or to the local RCMP detachment. Uh, it's pretty impressive when you when you think about also the last time I think you were on this program, we were talking about Port Coquitlam bringing in tougher rules when it comes to smoking because of a particular group of people that had kind of taken over one public area and that was making life difficult for others who wanted to use the area. And not to say that smoking and, and drinking a beer or a glass of wine are the same thing, but it, it is such a difference to, on the one hand, have issues around smoking. But clearly, uh, when you've introduced this in parks, it's not a problem. Yeah, no, again, and I think that when you treat adults like adults, um, the vast majority of us will rise to the occasion. Uh, And that has certainly been our experience here with respect to allowing the responsible consumption of adult beverages in those parks. Uh, You know, smoking is a tougher issue, uh, but it's one that we're addressing. And, you know, I think that as local government, we have a responsibility to be responsive to what's happening on the ground in, in our community. And, you know, we know that there's an issue with respect to a very small group of people um, who think they're entitled to take over a public space and and make it so that no one else can come and enjoy it. And that's just not on. And so uh, that's being uh, dealt with. And, you know, we're able to do two things at once. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, it's not rocket science, uh, but we're getting it done. And I know our residents appreciate it. Uh, In the release that was put out about this, the information that was put out, it says uh, that the city does have 30 other parks uh, that where alcohol is not permitted. Uh, Are there any plans if it's not if it's kind of a non-issue, people are doing this, like you said, uh, the difference in a lot of cases being uh, you don't have to put your beer in a uh, reusable coffee cup. Uh, Why not just open it up and tell people be responsible, make sure, uh, you know, you're following the rules when it comes to noise and not annoying people and just open it up. And like you said, treat adults like adults. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. And then we did have a bit of a discussion because that was some of the feedback from residents is, you know, I like it so much, let's open it up everywhere. And we may still end up there uh, at some point. It was felt that this was, uh, you know, a, a good step. You know, we did hear from some people who say, you know, I I, I like that there are some parks where, uh, you know, this is not permitted. So, you know, we're trying to achieve that that balance. I mean, when it comes down to it, the other thing that 
is important to us in, term, in terms of determining the parks is making sure that the amenities are there uh, in terms of washrooms, um, you know, some picnic shelters and, and things like that, and also making sure that we have the, the right level of of litter pickup in those parks as well. So those are a couple things that, you know, factors to be considered. Uh, and, you know, I think, again, I'm really proud of the step that we've taken. We're one of very, very few in the country, in fact, that allowed us. Um, but is there a next step? Um, there absolutely could be. And, and so I'm totally open to, again, being responsive to our residents and what they're telling us. Um, I, I feel good about where we are right now, but uh, there's nothing to say that we can take that next step uh, in the future. All right. And just uh, before I let you go, what about uh, places, because we're starting to see other uh, municipalities and cities as well, talking about patios again uh, on public property and uh, getting those outdoor spaces as the weather gets better. Uh, is Port Coquitlam going to be doing that as well? Yeah, we we did that. We went really quickly. Uh, we're one of the first to, to introduce that. I, I'm really proud of our, our program because what we did is we took all the red tape out of it. We took all the bureaucracy out of it. We made it super simple very straightforward application, waive the fee so you don't have to pay to apply or to get it. And then we even went a step further and we said, you know what, we're going to allocate a little bit of money within our budget and we manage our budget very responsibly in this city. But We have a little bit of money where we're going to allocate that we can have our city crews uh, help a local business um, do some in-kind work. Uh, So construction of, uh, you know, of various things to allow for uh, the outdoor space to be used. So, uh, so I'm really proud of what we did there. We've we've extended that program. It's been really successful. You know, again, not a earth-shattering concept happens in a lot of places in the world. The idea that you could, you know, have a meal uh, outside on a, a patio, uh, but for some reason it, it's taken a pandemic uh, to get us there. But um, yeah, absolutely, we're going to continue on with that. There's been a lot of uh, uh, very positive feedback about that and also about the way we did it right because i think again i think if you're a local business right now uh you know you're taking on water um in all sorts of directions the last thing you need is for the city to make something that's so bloody complicated you just throw your hands up and say forget it so we made it really simple and we've had a number of businesses take advantage of it we help them get it in place and uh, our residents uh, also benefit because they get to in- enjoy what those local businesses now have to offer. All right, uh, Mayor West, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me.